Support for The Gray Area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Hi, I'm Alyssa Wilkinson, sitting in today for Sean Illing. In the movies or on TV, apocalypses are like thunderclaps. They happen suddenly, altering the world forever. Often our stories focus on what happens after the apocalypse. People struggle to survive in a wasteland. They form alliances, scrounge for food, and outrun the zombies or whatever. But out here in the real world, there's an actual apocalypse on our horizon, one we can foresee because we've had plenty of warning. The difference between climate change and TV apocalypses is that climate change doesn't descend all at once. It's a slow process, the effects of which we feel little by little. Shifts in the weather, floods and fires, crop failures, people having to leave their homes. But when you project all these small changes 15, 20, 30 years into the future, you start to see how all these shifts could add up to something bigger, more destructive, more life-altering. Climate change brought on largely by the burning of fossil fuels and other man-made factors, is less of a thunderclap and more of a low hum that will become a roar. It won't be like the movies. And yet, at a time when it's hard to get anyone's attention, film and TV could be a way to reach people, to make people imagine empathize and reflect, to make them feel what climate change will do to the future and to their children's lives. So how do you put an apocalypse like climate change on TV? I'm Alyssa Wilkinson, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Dorothy Fortenberry. She's an executive producer, co-showrunner, and one of the main drivers of Extrapolations, the new anthology show on Apple TV Plus that's all about our climate-shifted future. Created by Scott Z. Burns, the guy who wrote the 2011 film Contagion that imagined what a pandemic might be like, Extrapolations takes a hard look at the human experience ahead for most of its viewers, namely comfortable, well-off people who might believe that climate change won't really affect them. And the show really wants those viewers' attention. It features, like, every big actor you can imagine. Meryl Streep, Forrest Whitaker, Kit Harington, Tahar Rahim, Carrie Russell, I could go on. The eight episodes tell a series of stories spread out over 30 years, starting in the near future, 2037. The future is going to be complicated. But Dorothy is imagining what it might really be like. And that's helpful, since we all need to start thinking through what's coming. Dorothy, I... I want to start by asking you a question that I've been pondering for a few years, which is what makes the matter of climate change 
such a fruitful and interesting area for storytellers to look at, but also a difficult one? Um, I think what makes it fruitful is it can be explored in a lot of different ways. If you are the kind of storyteller who loves telling action-adventure stories with buildings collapsing and monsoons and fires and catastrophe, climate change can certainly be uh, integrated in your storytelling very easily. But if you are the kind of storyteller who likes telling small, intimate stories about family, climate change can also be woven into that story. Mm. Climate change doesn't have a genre. It can be funny. Climate change can also be scary. Climate change can also be an opportunity for innovation, for new technologies, for new ideas. So I think what makes it fruitful is maybe in some ways the other thing that makes it difficult, which is it is endless. Mm -hmm. There are a million possibilities for a climate story. And I think that can feel overwhelming to a storyteller because it's not just one thing. Mm. The other thing that I think that can be difficult about climate change storytelling is for about the first 20 years of the 21st century, the question around climate change was, is it real? Mm -hmm. Do you believe in it? And it was framed as kind of a spiritual mystery. Um, And (laughs) people's experience of it was like, yes, I believe, or like, I don't believe, or like, I don't know if I believe. And that kind of storytelling is hard to do Mm. because belief is tricky to capture, it's very individual, and you're stuck with scenes of someone saying, believe it, and someone else saying, I don't believe it, which is not maybe the most interesting kind of story you can have. Now, I think we're in a moment where most people accept that it is happening, but I don't think we've settled on a narrative of, what does that mean? Yeah. And what does that mean, interestingly, for the person who's watching it? This is not like, what if an alien invasion happened? It's more like, this is happening in front of us. What will that look like for you? Totally. And I think one of my hopes for the show is that by reflecting people's actual reality back at them, it can make them feel a little bit less alone. Mm. I think there's a, a weird thing that's happening now with the absence of climate on television and in storytelling, which is a person goes through their normal day and it's an unseasonably warm winter, or there's a really weird tornado, or they're having allergies two months before they used to have allergies. (laughs) Relatable. Their their own life is already very climate change influenced, but then you sit down and you turn on the television, and it's a snowy Christmas episode. Yeah. And the world and the television universe has been completely unaffected by this thing. And I think that creates a little bit of disconnect and a feeling of unease. And my hope is that as we have more shows that just portray it, people can feel a little bit more like, oh, yes, my reality where the subway was flooded and I couldn't take it is also the reality of the characters on my television. Mm -hmm. Before we get to some of the work you've done, I also wanted to ask you what we're doing wrong or what what has been done wrong in stories about climate change. And one reason that I worry about this is that, like, as a critic, I often think about how what we think about history is filtered through cinematic depictions, right? Most of us, our access to World War II is honestly a bunch of World War II movies or Vietnam. And so when we're telling the wrong stories about climate change, we get the wrong idea about what it looks like and thus maybe can't recognize it when we see it in front of us. Does that ring true? Yeah. I mean, I think certainly in making extrapolations, I came in with a lot of opinions about things I thought hadn't been done. And I think I'm a little bit hesitant to say people are doing things wrong because I wouldn't want to stop someone from making a climate story. Sure. Like at this point, with so few of them out there, I'd rather have a million ones, including a bunch of ones that I think are misguided, than zero. Yeah. But I think what we experienced was There was a huge chunk of storytelling from the mid-aughts to maybe 2020 that all took place in a post-apocalypse. Yes, right. And I think, my personal theory, is that the reason we were spending so much time in a post-apocalypse is we had displaced climate anxiety. Hmm. We knew about climate change. We we sort of understood it was happening. We didn't really know what it was like or what it was going to be like. Hmm. So our imaginative senses went to this place of, well, what about after it's all over? 
It was Walking Dead. It was Hunger Games. It was these worlds where everything had been destroyed, and then our heroes are scrounging for food and water, trying to form a little band of people to survive the elements. And those are compelling stories. It's fun to watch. But they skip over a lot. Yeah. They skip over all the choices that all the people make that got us to the point where we're in the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And I think in watching them, we don't have to think about the fact that this was a created event. Right. It's not a foregone conclusion. A certain amount of climate change has already occurred. We are at a 1.1 degree Celsius rise. That is foregone. But what happens next is very open. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a, a real lack of storytelling around the middle. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were skipping to the end. And people have an instinct, which I understand, to want to know how the story turns out. Are we all okay? Or is it a disaster? And I think a lot of really interesting stories can come from being just in the middle. Yeah. You know, one thing I really appreciate about extrapolations is that, without giving away the ending, you know, there is a sense that man created this and there are points at which man can intervene. And I found myself surprised a little bit because I do feel like the narrative I constantly hear is that there's nothing we can do or there's nothing I can really do which may or may not be true. But when we portray climate apocalypse as an event that happened rather than as an event that is happening, then we get kind of a fatalist idea about it. Completely. I I think we, at every turn, wanted to resist a fatalism, doomerism, disempowerment. Every episode has characters who are making active choices and navigating what they can do in their lives, Mm -hmm. depending on what resources are available to them, what the scale of decision they have on their plate is. They don't always make great choices, but we really wanted to show people actively involved in it. And our goal, our aim, was to leave an audience feeling like there is something that can be done and every bit of change that can be made is a win. Mm. You know, every decimal that we push um, closer to 1.5 is lives that are saved, is communities that are protected, is species that exist. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make a show where it was happening, Mm -hmm. but its existence was very open-ended. There's the slow roll of climate change. I mean, this is a show that takes place over many decades. Yeah, 33 years. As time progresses on the show, we get to see different elements of the future, along with the changing ecology of the planet. Can you tell me a little bit about how you made those particular decisions? Yeah, absolutely. So when I joined Extrapolations, it was the fall of 2020, and Scott Burns, who created the show, had been at work with a group of writers to talk to various climate scientists, climate journalists, activists, different experts about different facets Mm -hmm. of the issue, because there are so many. So they learned about species loss. They learned about climate gentrification and how real estate patterns will change if certain previously undesirable neighborhoods suddenly become desirable because they're above sea level. Mm -hmm. We talked about all these different aspects, and from there, Scott distilled down several different possible scenarios. So when I joined, there was like a dossier of scenarios and a sense that the show would unfold over time. And then what I got to be a part of was figuring out what that really looked and felt like. And something that was really important to the whole creative team was that when you watch the first couple episodes, it feels a lot like now. The difference between the first episode of Extrapolations and today is the same as the distance between today and The Hangover. And I think if you watch The Hangover, you're not like, oh, this odd period piece where they're, you know, wearing funny hats. And their phones are bigger. Yeah, like there's differences, right? Like Mm -hmm. their phones are bigger. Mm -hmm. There's certain things, you know, people might be wearing or doing that seem a little bit outdated. Mm -hmm. But but you can, like, watch it and get it, and yeah. it doesn't feel like Charlie Chaplin or something. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty recent. And then we worked to make sure that we were constantly kind of turning up the dial of future 
as the episodes rolled out. So mm-hmm. by the time you get to episode eight, it's pretty futury. Like it's 2070, oh, yeah. you know, people's clothes, you know, the way people travel. Um, we're in a much more sort of pure science fiction, mm-hmm. you know, things are real different. Mm-hmm. But much like climate change, we wanted that to unfold over time. So people had the experience of, oh, it used to be kind of like now, and boy, it's getting different, which is, uh, again, a, a narrative challenge and a narrative opportunity. And I don't know if this is true for frogs, but the idea that if you're in an environment that is slowly having its heat raised, yeah. you don't notice the heat raising. <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally what we are all currently living through. We were trying to capture on screen that notion mm. of, okay, we're going to turn up the you know heat and then also turn up the future, turn up the distance from the present at every episode. But it was like, it was really, really hard to do. We did not film in order. Mm. So a lot of my job was just like running through sets and being like, wait a minute, what year is it? What country am I in? Mm -hmm. What do phones look like? Do we have the right phone? We filmed episode six last week. That can't be what phones look like in episode three. (laughs) Take it away. Like, Mm -hmm. it, it was... A logistical challenge, Mm -hmm. the likes of which I have never tackled before. (laughs) Right. Well, and there's these technologies that sort of are popping up throughout the series. You know, holograms are kind of present 15 years from now. But then, you know, as we go deeper into it, they get a lot more sophisticated and the the AIs are getting more sophisticated and they're filling more and more of a human void in people's lives. Another thing that I was thinking about is there's a moment where we're flying in above Manhattan and we see the seawall. Those sorts of things, where was the research coming from for those? Yeah, so we looked at New York's climate plan. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. what does New York think is coming? What is New York's plan to try to mitigate it? So some of it was just looking at current cities' actual adaptation and mitigation Mm. around climate and extrapolating from there. We did talk to some futurists. We Mm -hmm. talked to some people who their job is predicting what the future might be like. And one of the things that I learned from those conversations was— As screens become more integrated into people's lives, as technology becomes ever more a part of it, the natural, unadulterated human experience becomes this sort of precious elite commodity. Mm. So Mm -hmm. in the same way that as rayon becomes cheap and everyone can buy polyester, linen and cotton become these like fancy fabrics that you wear if you can afford them. The idea that having face-to-face time, being with another person, Mm -hmm. actually being in the same room with somebody and hanging out and not looking at a screen, that that would be a premium experience. Mm. You know, a lot happens in the first episode around activism, but then they're still kind of present in the background throughout. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts, having gone through that, about what we can really expect activism to look like in the future. Yeah, um, I think that we certainly can expect it to continue. I think there's been a tremendous growth in the climate activism community, and I think people are trying all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. One role that activism has in the pilot episode and throughout the season is to hold up a light and make very obvious the failures of large institutions that are tasked with solving this problem. Mm. We meet the activists in episode one, And what they are saying is the UN has gathered the Conference of the Parties. They're having one of those COP conventions. Is it actually going to accomplish anything or is it just people sort of patting each other on the back? Has it become too enmeshed with oil companies, with billionaires? Is it smartly including them or is it being Mm co-opted, you know, which are worthwhile questions. And I think throughout the show, we try to show activists saying, can these institutions respond accurately and quickly and effectively to this crisis? Mm. Is the UN capable of responding? Is a religious community capable of responding? Is the president of the United States and Congress capable of responding? We have these large institutions that were built in other centuries, you know, maybe other millennia, um, that have survived. (laughs) And 
the role of the activist often in the show, youth activists, Mm -hmm. is to kind of poke at these institutions and go, like, you're not doing enough. You're not really facing what needs to be done. I was born in 2015 when the world went to Paris and was issued a warning. Scientists told us way back then that if the average temperature on Earth increased beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius, there would be devastating consequences. And they were right. Just look around. COP42 continues today in Israel amidst urgent cries for action. And Yet here we are in 2037, considering the possibility of an increase of two degrees. But what happens after two? What happens when the corporations that are destroying our world say that our economies will fail? If we don't allow the temperatures to rise by 2.1 or 2.2 degrees? Yeah, that was especially interesting to me, thinking about how activism often has been the purview of the young, but climate activism feels particularly tied to young people. And in the show, you really bring that out, I think. Absolutely. And I think one of our hopes with the timeline that we set is to make a future that maybe not all of our audience will live to see all of, but make it feel more immediate. Mm. Because I think if you are a young person watching this show, you can reasonably expect to be here throughout the show's duration. And to say to maybe those people's parents, those people's grandparents, like, this is what is going to unfold. Yeah. And you will see some of it, and you may not see all of it, but please understand this is what your children are looking at, and this is why they're acting that way. Yes. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, One thing I've seen people talking about that I'm I'm curious how you were thinking about this, we never really get a finger on the initial cause of climate change. Like fossil fuels are obliquely mentioned or we see them in the background, but there's no like sit down to talk about like why is this all happening, which I understand from a creative standpoint, but I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I think we chose to operate from the standpoint that people Mostly, I think, understand that climate change comes from carbon emissions, that it comes from oil and gas, Mm -hmm. that corporations have the ability to continue to make money from an oil and gas economy, and they want to continue that as long as possible. But I don't think we sit down and have a drawing of, like, here's, here's where the emissions go up and here's how it mimics a greenhouse. The assumption of the show is that there will be a transition to a green economy. Mm. That is inevitable that we will at some point reach carbon neutrality, but it matters when. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are working very hard to push that date as far into the future as possible in order to profit in the present. And we really wanted to capture both of those truths, that this is going to happen, but it really, really matters whether it happens sooner rather than later. Yeah, which goes along with, I think, the other question I've seen around, which is, You know, it mainly focuses on wealthier people, right? Those are the main characters in the show, even though there's a lot of main characters in the show. And that's not true the whole way through. And it makes sense to me that you'd be focusing on people who do actually have some power in the situation, right? Yeah, I think we're hoping that it'll be received by people as implicating themselves. Mm -hmm. There's certainly a conversation to be had about the disproportionate impacts of climate change, and that's something that we have characters say. Indira Varma's character, Gita, says the people who have done the least to cause this problem are suffering the most from its effects. Mm -hmm. So it's a show that recognizes that the effects of climate change do not fall equally on everyone. Mm -hmm. But I think we also are aware that the people who watch Apple TV, are mostly not (laughs) impoverished people in the global South. Yes. We're making a show that's going to be consumed largely by upper-middle-class people in the Western world with some disposable income. And we wanted to have climate change feel immediate. There's a really complicated messaging question when you talk about things that have disparate impact where you run the risk of saying, this isn't a problem for you. Right. This isn't something you have to worry about. You'll be fine. Your kids will be fine. Everyone will be fine. Some other people somewhere else will be sad, but you'll actually make it through unscathed. Mm -hmm. And that is not the story we want to tell. 
We wanted to show people with a fair amount of money and a lot of education having difficult lives, going through real pain Mm -hmm. as a way of saying, you're not going to escape this. You cannot build a wall made out of money to insulate yourself from this problem. This is coming for you, Apple TV viewer. (laughs) Um, you, You are not immune. It is going to come into your house. It is going to come into your life. It is going to come for your family. You should care about it. And I think the other thing is, as the show unfolds, we expand our scope of concern. So we begin with characters who are, I would guess, the most similar to an Apple TV Plus audience. And by episode five, we've moved to two drivers in India who are not, I am guessing, that similar to your median Apple TV Plus viewer. And that is something I think television can do, is like Orange is the New Black, you introduce people to a set of people they maybe wouldn't have paid attention to by bringing in a character who reminds them of themselves. We've got to take a quick break, but when we're back, I'll ask Dorothy why she thinks there's something inherently religious about the climate crisis. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money. How to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot hugging, honeycomb, arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. The role of religion in this show is really significant and also something that is rarely handled well on television, even by people with the very best of intentions. So there is something inherently religious, you alluded to this, about the climate crisis. And I think this is in a couple different ways. One is it means stuff for religious communities, but it also raises religious questions for or questions that religion has historically attempted to answer. And on top of it all, the climate shift is <laughs> sort of biblical in proportion, right? Totally. Um, it's like literally about flooding, and the first apocalypse on record uh, in many religions is a worldwide flood. So as a person who thinks about this, what do you think about when you think about the religious nature of the climate crisis? 
Yeah, I mean, I think all of the things that you said, I think religion is one of the areas in which we consider the entire world, the whole planet. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about every animal, every plant, all the creepy crawly things, you know, all of the people. And that kind of mindset is pretty unusual in most aspects of our life. We don't often walk around thinking about the entire globe and every alive thing upon it. But it's also important when you think about climate change to contemplate every alive thing on the planet. Um, And if there is a God, that is the perspective of God, right? God is capable of understanding and imagining and holding in mind this notion of all living things. Mm -hmm. And that's the perspective that we try to, I think, aim for when we think about climate change is all of these things that are alive. So I think on a first level— Anyone who has ever spent any time thinking about the notion of a higher power, certainly a deity that created the universe, it maps very neatly onto climate change because you're considering such big stakes. And then exactly as you said, the second thing is so much of so many religious texts, including the Old Testament, are full of people screw up, and then there's a huge natural disaster. Like, that's sort of, it's like... It's like a flood or an earthquake or a fire. People just sin, Mm -hmm. and they're told not to, and they're like, you have to stop sinning. They're like, we'll stop sinning tomorrow. And then eventually, the only consequence of their tremendous quantity of sin is a huge natural disaster, which destroys almost all of them. Mm -hmm. And the few that survive are like, we are definitely not going to sin again. And then, of course, there is—they do, and there's another natural disaster, um, which also maps very neatly onto climate change. The repeated warnings, Uh the reluctance to give up sinning. So I think for somebody who ever thinks about religion, it's not a big stretch to put those two on top of each other. Mm -hmm. I had come into the project as a person who was already considering climate change and religion quite a bit. It was something that was very important to me that I was grappling with, and— I was really grateful to be able to join the show at a time when they knew that they wanted to have an episode about a rabbi and about religion, but there was a lot that still had to be figured out. And I felt really grateful that I got to kind of raise my hand and be like, I got, hang on, <laughs> let, me, let me jump in here. I got some things to say. Mm-hmm. Moses, he asked God the same question you have. Why so much suffering? And if you're so powerful, why not stop it? And did God give him an answer? Yeah, he did. What was it? Basically, it was I'd tell you, but you wouldn't understand because you're human and I'm God. That's it? That's the answer? Being human? Yeah, it has to be. Religion and religious spaces provide a physical location for people to come together and have feelings collectively, Yeah, which is another thing I think that climate change evokes and that people really often struggle with a way to process. People Mm. often feel their climate feelings alone, looking at their phone, seeing a sad tweet, feeling kind of doomed, and there's not anywhere that you can go. And I think one of the things about religious buildings is they are the place where you go for the wedding. They are the place you go for the funeral. They are the place you go where there's a baby. They are the place that you go after the disaster. There's one place where you go for all the different kinds of feelings. Mm -hmm. And climate change creates so many different kinds of feelings. And I think trying to model what is it like to hold that space as a literal building where people can come in together Mm -hmm. to process what they're going through. Mm. So one of the first characters in the show to recognize that climate change is a justice issue, aside from maybe the activist, is the rabbi who's played by David Diggs, which I think is a really fun twist of casting. You know, he he shows up in several episodes years apart, I guess I can say that, and his views about this being a justice issue kind of recur throughout. We live in a time of crisis. Not far from here. Environmentally displaced people are in need of food and water. And rest assured, any leader who is not trying to improve the situation is complicit. It's like Elie Wiesel said, we must 
take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Which I find to be really an interesting choice because we also hear the opposite (laughs) from religious leaders as well, right? I'm wondering what the thought was in creating that character and, you know, what kind of discussions do you have about how are we going to represent a religious character in this show? I think we really wanted to show someone who was trying his best mm-hmm. and also show someone who didn't always succeed. Yes. Which is a human person. Yes. <laughs> a person who is trying their best and does not always succeed is the definition of a human. And I think that was the starting point for a religious leader is to understand him as someone who does have high ideals, who believes in what he's up to, but is also caught in tensions and Mm -hmm. temptations, and we wanted to show that struggle. You know, I come to this project as a person whose personal religious leaders, people, when I go to church, there are prayers of the faithful, Mm -hmm. and one of the prayers is always environmental in nature. I have talked about climate change with, I think, all of the priests at my church (laughs) at this point. So creating a character who was the leader of a religious community who was very concerned about climate change and very concerned about other aspects of justice was not a stretch. Yeah. I will say, although I can think of a number of people in my life like that, I cannot think of a lot of people on television no. Uh, no. <laughs> who, <laughs> yes. who uh, act like this. So it was exciting to get a chance to portray someone mm-hmm. and also make them human. Yeah. You know, one thing I loved about that episode, and as you alluded to, climate change brings up a lot of feelings for us. You know, I was thinking about the feeling I have on an unseasonably warm day in the winter, which is so it's confusing. It's spooky. It's confusing. And I feel happy to be in the sunshine and also full of dread. Totally. I don't ever remember this when I was a kid. I'm not that old. Totally. But one thing that really comes up in this episode is those feelings include something like depression, like a slow rolling depression that really settles over people when it starts to feel like, well, what's even the point here? If I'm a teenager and I can see this coming and I know I can get involved with activism, but it also really feels like nobody cares who should then I'm going to have these feelings of depression. Or other people have feelings of guilt that they're dealing with. You know, sadness and guilt and fear of mortality and all this stuff are things that religious leaders deal with, right? Were there other ways that you were thinking about how religious communities are going to need to deal with the effects of climate change, refugees, all of that kind of thing? Absolutely. Um, I think thinking about who is even in your religious community is going to be influenced by climate change. People are going to come who used to live somewhere else, who now live where you live, or you may need to leave where you live and you may need to take your religious community somewhere else. So we were certainly thinking about that. And we were also thinking about how religious leaders can help people through these feelings of overwhelm, that one of the things that you're supposed to be there for is to deal with someone when they're in grief when they're going through a period of depression or anger or any difficult feeling and shepherd them through that. And I think for me as a Catholic, I come from a perspective that like you go to confession Mm -hmm. and there's a place you go when you feel bad. You go to the building. (laughs) There's a a physical place you go and then you say all the things that you did wrong. And you're not just kind of let off the hook. You're given the task of improving your behavior in the hopes that you will not be quite as bad as you were the last time, but you also know that you're going to be back at confession a year from now. So it's it's a duality that acknowledges that you're never going to reach a place where you don't have to show up and say what you did wrong, Mm. but also that you are capable, perhaps, of improving upon your past behavior and having slightly different superior sins to confess to next time. And I do think those feelings, they have to have somewhere to go, or they ought to have somewhere to go. And, And I I think it's very difficult to be sitting with those feelings alone. I think it's really hard to understand yourself as a carbon-emitting entity on the planet. Mm -hmm. I think the whole notion of carbon footprint can make us feel like the most efficient way of reducing our input would be to stop existing, which I think is horribly bleak and 
it's helpful to have somebody else who's maybe a professional at this guide you through a way of understanding yourself as someone who is, through every action, contributing to this problem while also finding reasons to keep going, keep the faith, keep hope alive, keep mm-hmm. working towards something better. Um, can you talk about the influence of Laudato Si on this show? Because I felt like it was everywhere. <laughs> I am very fond of Laudato Si. And you might have to explain what it is briefly for the— Absolutely. Um, yes. So Laudato Si is Pope Francis's encyclical on climate change, on care for our common home. It is a long essay, a short book about climate change, its causes, its effects, possible solutions— It's my personal favorite piece of climate writing. Uh, I do go around handing it out, um, (laughs) which is perhaps somewhat demented, but I think it is under-discussed, especially by people who are very interested in climate change and not at all interested in the Pope, which is a lot of people who are very interested in climate change. Fair enough. But I think people who think all day about climate change often notice an absence of a humane approach. I think they're can be a tip in the climate discourse towards despair. There can be a temptation to view all of humanity as the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things of Laudato Si' is that coming as it does from the Pope, it views people as gifts of God, that every single person on the planet is supposed to be here, and they're all made in the image of God, and we're so lucky to have them. And I think that kind of generosity towards all of humanity is something that the climate movement as a whole could really benefit from embracing. And he's able to do that while not sparing the fact that there are absolutely people who are responsible, and he's very happy to call out oil companies, gas companies, wealthy people, people who like having nice little, you know, organic gardens, but don't like having anybody who's not rich live next to them. He's really good at naming all of the (laughs) um, people who are responsible while also holding this deep love for all humanity. Yeah. That is what we aimed to do in the show. And I think he has a relationship to technology, which I think we also tried to capture in the show, which is that technology can't be good or bad. Technology is just something that we make, Mm -hmm. and then we use it in ways that either make things better or worse. But a technological fix is impossible unless it is deployed by humans collectively with their eyes on the collective good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if everyone would recognize that it was somewhat unusual for this to be— (laughs) <laughs> to come from the Vatican, let alone it's it's Francis's like first singly authored encyclical. Totally. Right? No, it was a real mic drop. It's very much about privileging short-term gains over long-term effects and how that creates a throwaway culture, right? Where it's not just poor people, but like elderly people, people with different mental capacities or whatever who are pushed to the margins in a culture that privileges short-term over long-term. And I think they're are certainly, when you look at the climate movement and you look at the environmental movement, there are definitely strains and people within it who kind of act like some people are disposable or kind of act like it'd be great if some people maybe didn't exist or maybe didn't have so many kids or maybe stopped being so gross. And I think that is a bad strain in the climate movement. I think it is correcting for that now and it's not as bad as it used to be. But I think there's certainly still room to have as capacious a possible understanding of all the people. Mm. Like, it it goes back to that, like, God perspective. Like, can we really hold every single person, including severely disabled people, including very old people, including very young people, like, can we hold all of them in our head as deserving a planet to live on? Well, that that kind of brings me to this question that is raised— in that third episode, which is why would God allow these bad things to happen to us? Which is not the question I'm going to ask oh, you. Oh, good. I was like, uh, <laughs> please solve the big, problem of that evil. Feels <laughs> no, my bailiwick. Who knows? Um, but I think the question that stems from that to me is, what role do you think television? <laughs> or storytelling, can have in helping people sort out that question. Because I do think it's a very live one. You know, whether or not you even believe a God is doing this or just why 
why are we even here if this is the fate that we're facing? As a storyteller, how how do you think it helps to sit through the story? Yeah, I think it's a really big question. Why is this happening is a huge question. And I think, hopefully, sitting through a story with a beginning, middle, and end, watching another person sort through it, even if where they end up is maybe not where you end up, I think it can let you understand that it's a worthwhile question, that you're not the only person who's ever had it, and that maybe in talking to other people, you can find answers. One of the journeys in that episode is the young woman who asks that question, this character named Alana. At first, she feels like nobody can even hear her. She asks, she has these things she wants to say, and I think she feels like they bounce off her parents, they bounce off the other adults in her world. She's wrestling with it, but she's not being heard. Mm. And over the course of the episode, she gets to the point where I think she really She changes some people's minds, and what she's trying to communicate really does sink in and make a difference. And I think even though we don't necessarily come down with an extremely clear answer as to why God is letting this happen, watching someone go from being not heard to being heard, Mm. I think provides a path for other people who are wrestling with this to feel like, okay, maybe I'm not asking the right people, but maybe somewhere out there there is someone who at least wants to have this conversation. Yeah, that's that's such a good way to think about it. It's it's funny because when we're watching TV, we tend to think of TV as an individual watching experience. And yet it really isn't. Like lots of people are there watching it with us virtually. But also what you're saying is that there's a community in the characters themselves if they're well-written. Yeah, I think so. I think you can see things on TV. I certainly have mm-hmm. where... You know, I remember watching My So-Called Life Mm -hmm. when I was 13, you know, and I had just dyed my hair red. And I was like, ah, this is weird. Like, Mm -hmm. we're going through the exact same thing, and Mm -hmm. it's a little bit uncanny. But I was able to feel more connected to Angela Chase in some moments Mm -hmm. than I did to people in my actual middle school. Just her existence means that somebody else thinks that way. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. We know that the climate crisis is a serious threat to our future. But is it also a serious threat to our past? I'll ask Dorothy what she means by this after one last short break. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kids' shoes when they get too big, or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I 
want to read something that you wrote, not for this show. Oh, no. Um, no, it's because it's <laughs> lovely. And when I brought it to our producer, he was like, wow, that's incredible. So I just want to read it and then have you kind of respond to it in the context of this show. Um, you wrote, mess with nature and you do not just mess with people who are living now and will live in the future. You also mess with the past and our connection to it. When you grow up learning to ice skate on a frozen pond in Minnesota because your grandfather, who grew up ice skating on a frozen pond in Minnesota, taught you, and you continue to ice skate on that pond after your grandfather's death, then, in some ways, your grandfather continues to live on. And conversely, when the pond becomes too warm in the winter months to develop a solid crust of ice, if it freezes but just barely and is unsafe— then, in some ways, your grandfather dies again. I, I like, kind of got goosebumps the first time I read that because I genuinely have never thought about it that way. But when we let things slip away on our planet, we are losing not just our future, but our past, too, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's sort of what you were saying about talking to people younger than you and saying winter didn't used to be like this. And there is a collective understanding that we all share of the way the seasons progress that I think ties us to previous generations, you know, and and whether that's a rural experience of ice forming on a lake or whether that's an urban experience of looking at photos of New York in the snow in the 30s and then being in New York in the snow in the 80s and going, okay, like something continues. Mm -hmm. Things change, but nature can be this thing that continues. For me, it's very moving. For me, it's very meaningful to feel like I can see landscapes or see constellations or see the ocean in the way that previous members of my family did, even in their absence. And it really makes me sad. Um, and it's, an, it's, a, it's a form of loss that I think we don't necessarily talk a lot about with climate change, but it's something that I, I hold very dear. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've been thinking about personally, privately for a long time and did get a chance to explore in extrapolations. Um, I also got a chance to talk about it in a play I wrote mm. called The Lotus Paradox. Mm -hmm. And one of the features of that play is that there's a children's book author who's written a book about the place that she lives. And in the books, at this time of year, it's always snowing. And in the play, it's raining. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that I made the choice is to say those books capture a moment that she meant to be eternal, that any child reading those children's books yeah. in any decade would go, ah, yes, winter in this month, in this place, it is a snowy time. Mm -hmm. And when that ceases to be true, there's a rupture that happens with the past. Yeah, and some of this comes through in the second episode of the show, which involves a whale voiced by Meryl Streep. As, as all whales say. are. Yes, right, in my dreams anyhow. And I found myself, like, deeply moved by this whale and her experience that we're kind of let into. But, you know, the idea of extinction really is about losing a past. Yeah, and the idea that there are these family patterns mm -hmm. that the, you know, the whale scientist— who's played by Sienna Miller, is studying the way the whale passes down knowledge to younger whales and the notion that when she is gone, those patterns will not continue. I also, I also find that very moving that we as people, you know, whether we're parents or whether we're just people who interact with other generations, we're passing down sets of knowledge and some of those sets of knowledge are going to change with climate change. Generational kinds of knowledge are very meaningful to me. And I, I think a lot about things that I've learned from previous generations and that I want to pass on to my kids. Mm -hmm. And and the notion that climate change will disrupt them feels really painful and hard to think about and maybe a place that fiction can step into that gap mm -hmm. and that we can sort of hang out with this whale and process some things that we're going through by by watching this whale go through them. Yeah, that presumption of continuity is there for me, right? And just watching a show where people really don't have the presumption of continuity, where they've stopped thinking that way, yeah. is remarkable. I Something I think about sometimes is, you know, what do we do with our polarized America? And I don't know. <laughs> I don't have, like, a, a quick answer. But 
I do think this notion of disruption and change and loss of tradition is at least theoretically a way that people who understand themselves to be deeply conservative can understand the threats of climate change. Mm -hmm. If your goal is to pass on a way of life and a set of traditions and a set of assumptions, and you currently feel like those are under threat because of a certain set of policies or politics, I think— it is also possible to imagine that climate change will, in fact, be more disruptive mm. than some of the things you're worrying about. And so if you want to allocate your worrying about what traditions are being destroyed uh, part of the day, my gentle suggestion would be that climate change should actually be top of mind. Mm. That changes in nature, changes in how we eat and drink in the ways that we can all hang out together— those will be more painful and more disruptive than any other forms of social change. And it feels like we've had a little taste of that in the past few years. I have one more question for you that the show kind of raises and plays with and I think also kind of lands on, which is a paradox maybe. There's a lot of discourse about the idea that, for instance, encouraging us to recycle is almost a distraction from the fact that really most of the responsibility lies on corporations that, you know, all the recycling in the world is not going to fix the problem. On the other hand, the show, a character at some point says the problem is that wherever we go, we have to take us with us or that being human is what we can do in these circumstances. And I'm wondering, you know, over your many years of thinking about this, but also over the course of working on the show and helping shape it, how do you think about the interaction between that kind of individual and corporate responsibility for what could be our future? That is a great question. <laughs> I think what the show tries to do, I'll start with the show. Mm -hmm. I think what the show tries to do is show that Everybody has some level of decisions open to them and some level of responsibility. There are characters who have a great deal of power. They have political office. They are billionaires. And they have more responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I think the show, over time, shows them being held to account and ultimately trying to create a sense of justice around the choices that they made and the consequences they have. But that doesn't mean that other people aren't responsible. That I think in somebody like Sienna Miller's character, David Diggs's character, they have choices. They can choose where they work, for example. They can choose how they interact with youth. They can choose how they interact with their boss. Those choices are still prevalent and those choices are still possible. And we're not saying that they get to throw up their hands and say, well, I'm not a billionaire, mm -hmm. so what can I do? And I, th I think what we were aiming for, certainly, was a sense that everybody's responsibility is not identical, but we also don't get to say, my choices don't matter. I'm going to go, you know, I don't know, fly on a private jet around the world forever <laughs> and just not care about it. No matter where we're meeting somebody, there's always something that they can choose. There's always a way they can participate. The way that I, as an individual human <laughs> reconcile this question around individual responsibility versus the fault of corporations. The personal choices that I make around climate change in my own life are a faith practice. I wash our clothes in a washing machine, but we hang them on a line to dry. Done that for close to 20 years now. It's not making a huge dent. I understand that. I know the carbon output of a dryer, and I know it is not enormous, but it is a gesture in the direction mm. of this being important. Mm -hmm. So I do it, and my family sees I, me do it, and my kids see me do it, and it's a way of saying, this matters to me. Mm -hmm. I am reminding myself every time I hang up a wet t-shirt that this matters to me. That is insufficient, though, if being reminded doesn't then also lead me to works. Mm -hmm. So I then have to go out into the world. I can't just be a, like, contemplative desert father recycler, right? <laughs> like, like, it's not enough just to sit at home and recycle. But in some ways, the act of recycling is a contemplative moment where I'm, like, washing out the container and going, I don't know. You know, like, especially if it's plastic, like, I really don't know. Like, this is maybe not doing anything, but it's reminding me I am a person who thinks about this. I am a person to whom this matters, and I need to take that attention and that care out into the larger world. Mm. That's great. Well, 
This has been great, Dorothy. Thank you so much for coming here. We're in New York talking in the same room, which feels like a premium experience. Yeah, it's fun. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. New episodes of Extrapolations come out on Fridays on Apple TV+. The Gray Area is produced by Eric Janikis. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. You can let the team know what you think by sending us an email at thegrayarea@vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends. Ask them what they think. Sean Illing will be back on Thursday. I'm Alyssa Wilkinson. I write about film and culture at Vox.com. Feel free to look me up there. New episodes of our show drop on Mondays and Thursdays.